The content and opinion shared in this podcast represent the experiences and viewpoints of the host and his guests. They do not speak on behalf of Amazon.com, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Hello, and welcome to Owning It, leading by being unapologetically you, where we talk to managers and leaders about what it takes to lead with authenticity in order to transform organizations, teams, and themselves. For those who have listened to other episodes of this podcast, you will recognize that I am not your regular host. I am Jenna Powers, the Director of Amazon Consumer Talent Operations. Today, I will be talking with your regular host, Matthew Dawson, uh, who is typically uh, the voice you hear in the Owning It podcast. Matthew is the head of talent development for Amazon's product assurance, risk and security organization. He has extensive experience in building global L&D programs, coaching and diversity, equity and inclusion. Before joining Amazon, Matt worked at Shell Oil and the World Bank. He holds a Master of Arts in Linguistics from the University of Utah and a Master of Education from Seattle University. Welcome, Matt. Welcome. Feels like I'm I'm coming home. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, Matt, when you asked if I would serve as host and to interview you, I have been looking forward to this ever since you asked me um, for a variety of reasons. But one is so that I get to ask you what is your typical intro question of guests, because I love that you just dive right in with your guests and get them to really be as authentic as they possibly can be right out the gate. One of the ways that we try to drive authentic leadership is by creating a space for the who I am to surface in the what I do. And so how would you answer the question, who are you? So I guess first I'll say that, you know, it's only right that I put myself through the pain that I put others through. So, that you know, thank you, Jenna, for agreeing to do this. And I'm glad that you've been excited about it. As I think about this question, I think that the identity that I've been the most aware of for the longest amount of time throughout my life is probably the identity as learner. So education is extremely important to me in terms of formal education, but also informal education. Um, read a lot of books, listen to a lot of podcasts, but that's kind of been true throughout my entire life. I was, you know, growing up, the breadwinner in my family was my mother. So she was out of the home. My father also worked spent a lot of time like after school kind of being very self-motivated, doing my own homework, you know, didn't really have somebody there to sit down and do those types of things with me. I remember, you know, even in like middle school, high school, like researching private schools that I could go to, just education has always just been a really big piece of my identity and something that I've always really valued. And the other way that I'll answer this is something that's become more emergent. I think it's always been true to my identity, but I'm just much more aware of it. I think over the last couple of years is my identity as what I would label a divergent thinker. And how I think this has come up most recently is that I notice quite often that I often have either a contrarian opinion to the things that other people <laughs> think, or I just go about things in a very different way than others do. Um, in a recent one-on-one -on -one with um, Carletta Uten, who is a recent guest on the show, you know, I solicited some feedback from her. And one of the ways that she described me was quirky. Um, and she went on <laughs> to talk about kind of the way that I think about things. Um, so I'm taking it as a compliment, but I think that those would be the two top identity pieces that I think are I'm most aware of and that I, I, I value quite a bit. 
So there's a lot in there I want to dig into, Matt, but I, I actually want to start with where you finish in talking about being a divergent thinker and talk about being quirky. <laughs> and so when you got that feedback, does it resonate with you? You know, I think my initial reaction to it was like, am I being shaded a little bit? <laughs> like, am I being given some kind of a, you know, a backhanded compliment? But as I, I actually, you know, I embrace it and I realize as we kind of dived into that conversation that it's really pretty true as I think about like my own experiences about, you know, I mentioned this already, but I think that I often sort of have a counter viewpoint or I approach things in a very different way than other people approach them. So a more concrete example of that is that, you know, you read in my bio that I lead a talent development function, which a lot of people might know more formally as like a learning and development function. And I've been describing myself to people for quite a few years now as sort of the anti-training trainer. Um, <laughs> you know, training is kind of the last thing that I go to. There's all these other things that I think can optimize organizations and individuals in the workforce. And so I often think of training as like the last resort. And a lot of people think of it as kind of the first thing to solve their problems. So I think that that's the type of quirky or that's the type of divergent thinking that I'm actually quite proud of. And so I want to stick on this idea of like, hey, I'm the anti-training trainer. You work <laughs> in learning and development. I'm curious, and you talked about being a lifelong learner. I want to deep into, dive deeper into the lifelong learner thing as well. But my first thought, Matt, is, do you feel like in your career that you're afraid of being pigeonholed? You have all this experience in learning and development. It's clearly what you love to do. And then yet you say, well, I'm the anti-training trainer. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious about how that lands then with your with your business partners and those that you work with. Like, does that scare them that, that that's how you think? Um, I don't know that it necessarily scares people. I will say that it, sometimes it frustrates people. And the reason why is that I think that my deep knowledge of the fields of learning and behavioral science actually position me with a certain level of expertise to really know when learning is the lever that you want to pull to try to solve your problem or elevate your performance. And I think that the problem is, is that a lot of my business partners or stakeholders think that it's always the answer, which I know because of my expertise that it's not. So um, I think it actually goes to a place of like, I'm actually educating people quite often. Something, you know, that I've been known to say quite frequently is that no amount of good training is going to solve for a bad process. So let's, you know, let's dive deeper into your processes. It's not, you know, that people just don't know the things that they need to know or aren't able to do the things that we need them to do. Sometimes it's just we have a really complex or overly complicated process or there's some inefficiencies that we need to be driving or maybe it's a tool or a resource that somebody doesn't have in their job that would really elevate, you know, what they're able to do. So I think it is frustrating because people sort of naturally go to it and then they come to me to want to solve their problem for them. And I'm like, uh, you know, let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's walk it back a few steps and really figure out what's going to help solve your issue. And I think at the end of that, there ends up being a lot of respect, one, because I've pushed back and sort of helped to educate them, but also you know, they're ultimately getting the result that they want, which is solving the problem just in a different way than they expected. Mm. 
So Matt, you're talking about like, you're in a service function, right? And you've got these customers and partners that are coming to you and they're asking for something. You know, one of the things I know that I wind up doing a lot of interviewing in my role and also in a service function, I oftentimes ask candidates questions around, you know, tell me about a time when your customer asked you for one thing, but you really knew they needed something else. And I hear you talking to that. And so I'm interested, it feels like perhaps it might take some courage to be able to have that kind of conversation with your partners. Is that something that you find that it actually takes courage to have these kinds of conversations when they're asking you for one type of solution and you're like, yeah, no, (laughs) no, you want this. So the first thing that I would say, and maybe we need to come back to it, is that I don't disagree with sort of the intention or the ethos of, you know, being in a service or a support function, but I never refer to myself that way. So I would never, you know, sort of position myself as a leader or the teams that, you know, I'm leading as quote unquote service providers, I always sort of position it as a thought partner, not necessarily a thought leader, but a thought partner. Like, let's really talk about this and collaborate on getting you the right thing. And that mental model shift, I think, actually transitions into what you're talking about is that I don't actually feel a lot of pressure to say yes or to, you know, sort of comply with giving somebody what they need because I sit in a quote unquote service function. At the end of the day, I really want you to get the results that you want. And if I know that even if I do something, you're probably not going to see the ultimately the result that you want. I feel like my partners and my stakeholders want to hear that. Mm -hmm. Their initial reaction might be, hey, Matt's overcomplicating this or Matt's telling us, no, I'm more saying yes, but, you know, we need to rework this a little bit. You know, in the last couple of years, I can't think of a place where I've pushed back in that way or tried to educate in that way where where I've really experienced what I would describe as like fear or needed a high degree of courage to do that. But probably earlier in my career, I think it was a little bit maybe more intimidating to, you know, tell people, especially, you know, the partners that I support that might be much more senior to me. I actually don't think that that's the right idea. You said something in there, Matt, that I want to explore a little bit more deeply because I think it's really interesting. You said, hey, I don't, I would not never position myself and my team as a support function. We're thought partners. We may have listeners out there that either themselves sort of are responsible for delivery of good services, products or, or whatnot and them and their teams and others then that are partners to those teams. And so I would love to hear more then about how you position with your team to empower them to have those similar sorts of conversations that sound like you are very comfortable having. Yeah, I think this has actually been probably one of the bigger struggles that I've had as a leader. And I can recognize as I've explored this with my own team, there's a lot of potentially dynamics that go along with being able to push back or to reposition, I think, or reframe how we think about ourselves as a as an apartment and as an organization. And one of those, you know, one of those most salient things is that I do identify as a white male and I recognize that there becomes a lot of maybe audacity that becomes a little bit easier, both because I know a lot about the subject matter and I have those, you know, social identities that embolden me in ways that might not be as easy for other people. And I'm definitely aware of that. And it's something that I try to navigate with my team and my leaders, maybe don't identify in the same ways. I think the other thing is, is that I've just doubled down a little bit on, I think part of it is the language that we use. So I'm very intentional with my team of, you know, not using words like we're a service or support function. I always sort of use that language of being a thought partner. I also talk with the team quite a bit about 
the ways that we can take a results orientation to the work that we do rather than some other options here might be like a wants-based approach. I want this. And so you deliver this other thing, which I think is much more service-oriented or a needs-based approach, which is just, hey, we have this gap. We don't have, you know, if it's a training program or a course, we don't have it and we need it. I don't take that approach either. I really think about first, what's the result that we want to achieve? What's the best way of achieving it? Is there something that my team can or cannot do? And I really try to stress that type of thinking, especially mm-hmm. with my direct reports to the people who are reporting directly into me, but with my entire team. That's It's fantastic, Matt. Thank you for that. There's someplace else I want to go with you. And you actually, you went there. So I want to bring us back. You know, in your bio, you talk about having experience in diversity, equity, and inclusion. You just talked about being a white male. I know from you, again, you said you're a big reader. And I know you and I in the past have talked about books. Um, And I was actually thinking about you. This weekend, I sat down on Saturday and read uh, an entire book in a day, which was Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, which to be fair is like 130 pages. So it's not that long. Um, But the the whole thrust behind um, A Room of One's Own is is that women in particular sort of need the space to think and to write. And oh, by the way, they need money to do that as well. And so like there's a there's a there's a line there about sort of through the entire book, not only of kind of women's empowerment in a male-dominated society, but also a fair amount of privilege. And so can you talk to me a little bit how you think about, you know, as a white man, an educated white man, with your teams, how does your acknowledgement of your own privilege manifest itself, do you think? Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm able to walk this back a little bit in the sense of, you know, the identities that I didn't talk about when we let off this conversation, which are, you know, and one of the things that I thought about is my identity is kind of a self-proclaimed mama's boy. Like, I'm very close to my mother. My mother was the breadwinner in my home. She has a higher level of achieved education than my father does. And I always was really close to her and always really admired the things that she was able to accomplish. And at the same time, in both, you know, my family context, as well as the cultural context, community context that I found myself through most of my upbringing was very traditional in the sense of like, you know, even in my mom and my dad's own families, women sort of like stayed at home and the fathers were the breadwinners. And, you know, so I saw from a very young age that this model was sort of flipped on its head. And there was a lot of that divergent thinking that happened throughout my growing up because, you know, when I would hear things about what my friend's moms were doing or not doing and then thought about like that compared to my own mom, I always sort of had a reaction that was probably coming from a place of being very protective of my mom and not thinking, hey, she's she's definitely not a bad mom because she works 12 hours a day and, you know, she travels and she's highly educated and all of those things. So I think that there's a there's a degree of just having that lived experience of sort of having that model that was maybe a little bit different from a lot of people that were in my communities growing up. And I think the other place, another identity that I didn't share is that I'm also a white male who is a father to two black boys. And I think that, you know, that forces me in some ways to think about things a little bit differently that lets me kind of examine my own privilege, my own dominance, the power dynamics that exist in my own life and organizations and be a little bit more intentional of trying to disrupt those things and come from a place of empathy. And the last thing that I'll say about that is I have an amazing team who isn't afraid to provide me feedback and hold me accountable. I have, you know, people who report into me who do a great job of saying, hey, Matt, you you could have said that a different way or... 
did you recognize that you've used really gendered language? Like one of those things is that, you know, I might say something like manpower. What's the manpower required to operate this program or this department or whatever? And, you know, I have people that will say, um, you, you know, that's a very gendered term that you just used to say manpower. It's not inclusive. So I think that those would be the things both coming from a place of lived experience that has, I think, heightened my awareness and my empathy. And then also great people who aren't afraid to provide me some critical feedback. So I've, I've learned some things about you that I didn't know. I've known you for a couple of years now. And so there, there's some things in there that I didn't know. So I appreciate your candor. Um, you want it, you want to get a little deeper now? At this I love, I love, you knew deep. it was Generally, a risk like, when yeah, you asked I, I me did, to do this. I did, <laughs> but I'm, I'm up to jump down this, this uh, rabbit hole of deepness with you. Okay. Fantastic. Um, because one of the things you just shared that I didn't know about you is that you're a father to two black boys. And that particularly resonates with me. I am a Black woman who was adopted by white parents. And so I had white parents growing up. And I think for me, that absolutely makes its way into everyday life, particularly my work life. And I also think, you know, where we are in our social awareness and ethos right now, you know, as we're recording this in December of 2020, in addition to all the things that happened in 2020 in the U.S., we had the Black Lives Matter movement, which made its way into work, right? And I think everybody sort of brought that to work with them. And so I'm curious for you then, let's take this in a couple of pieces, Matt. I think maybe bef before, during, and after. I don't know that you can really separate things that way, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so sort of before, you know, 12 months ago, talk a little bit about how your role as a father to two Black children, you know, did or didn't impact kind of your day-to-day -day working life. And then, you know, sort of through the spring and then kind of now. Yeah, I appreciate the framework and the modeling of maybe the, a way to chunk this up because, you know, it immediately, I think, evokes a lot in me just from kind of diving into this. I think the first thing to say about it is that there's been a lot of pain in all of that. But I think, that you know, f physical pain is both, you know, kind of my identity as a father, as, a, as well as somebody who is a human and cares deeply about other humans. <laughs> so I think that there's been a lot of that there, but there's also been... You know, I think part of that pain has been just a heightened sense of fear, to be honest. And I recognize that the emotional toll that this takes on me being a privileged white male and just being responsible for little humans who look very different than I look and my own reaction and my own feelings of that. And then thinking about people on my team, my colleagues who actually look more like my boys look in terms of their phenotype and their physical characteristics and what they must be feeling seeing the things that are happening in the world to people that look like them. I think it's, again, created a high degree of empathy, a high degree of concern. And, you know, what that's led to for me is that I think a little bit more motivation to take action. So I've had conversations with people in my organization that I wasn't having before, you know, mm -hmm. um, conversations like actually, you know, starting off one-on-ones with people that I worked with for a really long time about how are they doing? How are they feeling? Um, being really direct of things like, what is it like for you to be the only person of color in some of the meetings that I'm in where it's still, you know, a problem with that type of representation in some pockets of the organizations that we work in? And what can I learn? How can I support? How can I, you know, just give other people space where they can feel like, they have somebody to at least listen, even if it's not, you know, my ability to solve those things. So I think that it's 
created. I think there's some mental pieces for me where I'm thinking about my sons who identify in terms of their physical makeup differently than I do. What would be the leader that I would want them to have? Who would be the people that I would want them to have supporting them? What types of conversations would I want them to be having right now? And trying to be somebody who can broker that for other people, I think is probably the big piece. And then, you know, I think the last piece is kind of post is that not getting complacent. I think it's very easy to fall back into old patterns. So just keeping it top of mind, trying to continue to have those conversations to take action where I feel it's appropriate, where I've been asked to take action and just keep it something that's more ingrained into my day-to-day rather than something that I'm doing as a reaction to something else. I, You know, Matt, I, I love so much of what you said. And, and when you said, you know, who's the leader that I would want my sons to have, I think is a really easy way to think about leadership for anyone. And so I love that piece. You know, one of the things I think people often ask female leaders, right, is they ask the balance question, how do you do it? How do you, you know, keep it all sort of, how do you keep all the balls of the air as a mom? I think oftentimes people don't ask dads the same question. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you that question then. As a dad, how do you keep all the balls in the air? You have a really big job with a lot of people that count on you at work as well. How do you make it all work? The thing that comes immediately to my mind is creating some boundaries around time management and letting people know what those boundaries are. So I do some things where I block out my calendar during certain times that I kind of dedicated family times or things where I know that I need to be doing some things with my children or I need to provide my partner, you know, kind of the handoff. And so those things are scheduled and baked in. I also let my team know, for example, kind of at the beginning of us working from home and related to COVID. So back March, April time of 2020, one of the things that I let my team know is from about the hours of 11 to 1, that's the time where I'm engaging with my kids to either help with homework or just get them outside and, you know, do something together as a family because having two working parents, we have to break up our days a little bit differently. They're out of school. So it just created some additional complexity. But I think that, you know, creating some real boundaries and communicating those boundaries is probably the top thing. I think the other piece of this that I've become more aware of is really, again, I think checking my male privilege around you know, like, what assumptions did I have when all of this happened? And, you know, just being completely candid, it was sort of that, hey, my partner will kind of pick up this load because my partner is female. And, you know, I'll keep working and I have this job and all these people that depend on me and having to continually check that and have her hold me accountable to that of like, hey, you're not showing up in a way that you said you want to show up or I need more support from you. And me being a little bit more intentional of Also trying to make it so she doesn't have to ask for that. Um, But I'm sort of being a little bit more proactive about it. But it's definitely been something I think that's changed in terms of just kind of expected, you know, what I might expect of her, what she might expect of me. And I think that we've been able to maybe balance or share that load a little bit more effectively because of this complexity that's arisen with COVID and, you know, everything that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Matt, you you opened and you talked about being a lifelong learner. Through 2020, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? The thing that's coming up for me immediately is, I think, probably a common definition of integrity, where it's really that your actions kind of match your values or the things that you say. And I think it might just be because the proximity of the last answer to, to your question. I've had to think really critically about 
What does it mean to be a good leader? What does it mean to be a good learner? What does it mean to be a divergent thinker? Like all of those identities that I say that, you know, I sort of identify with, that I value. Am I doing the things that I say, you know, is the behavior matching sort of the the words? And I think that that's been probably my biggest learning in 2020 has been that there's some opportunity for me to be able to kind of bridge the gap between those two things in some of those places. And I think it's actually much more true probably in my home life than it is Mm -hmm. in my work life. But there's opportunity there too. So I think it's just more of a heightened awareness, I think has been my biggest learning in 2020 of creating better alignment between my values and my my actions or state of beliefs. So Matt, that, I mean, that is particularly self-reflective, I think, and, and, and open and honest. And so I, you know, I, again, appreciate your honesty and your candor. I'm interested, you know, it is hard, right, to match your actions with your values sometimes. And certainly I like to think that we all have control over that. It might not be easy, but we have control over it. I'm curious, and particularly in a work environment, Do you ever wind up in a situation where somebody else's actions don't match your values? Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've given thought to, I think, both, you know, during the time that we've been speaking as well as over the last several months about kind of that divergent thinking piece. And I think a big characteristic or how you would know that that's happening is that I think the boldness with which I approach the world and I am maybe sometimes too candid or too I feel too empowered to provide people feedback. And I think that, you know, the things that I value are the things that I think that most people should value. If I don't see those things happening, I feel sort of emboldened to make that known to people that I disagree with them or that I think that they're doing something that shouldn't be doing it. You know, just a a quick anecdote that I won't get, you know, too deep into the details. There was a pocket of the business that I, I sort of thought that they had some inclusion and equity problems, especially as it related to how female employees and male employees were treated. And I told that male leader who was much more senior in the organization than me, like, hey, I think you have a problem with this. I think this is why. And it's probably not the news that any leader wants to hear, especially, you know, at a big multinational company. But I really didn't second guess it. I really didn't feel like any sort of fear around that. So I think that that's the type of thing for me when a situation like that arises that I just feel very emboldened or very empowered to kind of take action on. So I think that is fantastic, you know, sort of modeling as well, right, for your team and those around you. How do you think about creating the space for your team members to have the same kinds of conversations with you or other leaders? And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be gender related or anything like that, but just more around the idea of like, hey, I don't, I think something here is off and I feel okay. I feel safe to raise my hand and say it. Yeah, uh, you know, I had a recent experience actually where something happened within the team It involved several of my team members. And I will say that I potentially was not the best version of Matt that I wanted to be. I came down a little bit strong, provided some very candid language, some kind of strict mandates around what I wanted to see happen because it sort of came to light that what I felt like should have been happening wasn't happening. And I came down on the team pretty hard to be just completely transparent about it. And in a one-on-one that I had with one of my direct reports who was in this meeting and several of her direct reports were also in the meeting and sort of bore the brunt of me not being the best version of myself, 
she was very diplomatic, but also very candid in that she just said, hey, I want to talk a little bit about this meeting that we had, the things that you said. I just want to let you know from my perspective and the perspective of the team members, the people who were important to me that I talked to about it afterwards. Here's some things that I think you could have done differently, which are you could have asked a little bit more questions before you sort of like went off on us. You could have tried to work with us to figure out what we've already tried versus what we actually did and not judged us so much on, hey, this result isn't what Matt wanted. Let's figure out why it wasn't the right result. And let's walk that back a little bit so that we can actually do something productive rather than Matt just sort of having a Matt, you know, a not best version of Matt moment. (laughs) Um, So I think that, and you know, it happens in other places too. I gave an example of, you know, even around language where some of, you know, the people on my team will provide me that feedback. I've had situations in a meeting where people who are actually several degrees of separation in terms of like kind of the organizational hierarchy have like stopped me, you know, said like, Matt, you know, I want to stop you for a second because I think we're getting off track on this, which for me as the leader is actually really like pretty cool that people feel like they can interrupt me or they can, you know, kind of redirect me or they can challenge me because that is the culture that I want to have within the team, the the type of leader that I want to be known for, that I create that space where people can feel emboldened and, you know, empowered to do the same type of things that I do with, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, other leaders or other teams. So again, I commend you and your leadership then for having that sort of culture, because I think, I think that is, that is fantastic. As you just said, you just ended though, and you said, you know, hey, it's the same, you know, I feel empowered, you know, I I want my team to feel empowered too and, and whatnot. Some of what you're talking about though, particularly when you're talking about, you know, whether it's folks more senior to you or what have you, is around risk taking, Right, like you use the word emboldened, oh, oh, but it's Jenna. essentially. Oh, Jenna. <laughs> I just slid right into that, right? You didn't You're even trying. see that coming. Oh, geez. You, you didn't even see that. Okay, finish your question. Coming. Um, so for the listeners, something to know about Matt. He is painfully risk averse <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so I'm re- very interested to hear about this behavior, which is risky behavior, right? Like tapping senior leaders and saying, hey, I know you don't want to hear this. Or when somebody's coming and saying, hey, I want you to do this for me. So actually, like, like that's not what you need. It's something else. Like all of this is a form of risk-taking. And so I'm really interested to explore what is a high comfort level <laughs> in some of this integrity and discussions and those sort of things that you have when I know in other areas you are very risk-averse. I think there's a difference for me between kind of holding or owning an identity as like, hey, I'm a risk taker, which is not me. Like I I am risk averse and I take a lot of risks. I think that they're just very measured and potentially more specific risks in the ways that are. So then those aren't risks then, by the way, by the way, just so we're clear. Just so we're clear, those aren't risks. But sorry to interrupt, carry on. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's it's a fair point because I think that like if we're thinking about risk and sort of the sense of like, hey, I'm doing something and I don't know what the outcome is or like, you know, this might actually cost me something. For me, it is very true that when I provide somebody feedback or when I disagree with them, I'm not really thinking about the risk, right? Like I'm not actually thinking about, hey, like this could create a really bad perception of me from this senior leader. Maybe I won't get promoted someday or, you know, whatever those things are. I don't, none of that kind of goes through my mind. It's more about 
hey, I disagree or, you know, I, I think that our values are misaligned and I'm going to let you know like what I think about that. Definitely that type of action is easier for me than taking like what I think you're alluding to as in terms of a real risk. So I love people like you, Jenna, who are risk takers. I guess I'll just close out with the answer by saying, yes, I am not a very passionate risk taker. Well, I appreciate the acknowledgement, but I'm not going to move on. (laughs) 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 You're like, yes, I don't take risks. Carry carry on. Next, carry on. Next Next. question. Um, (laughs) No, were you, so, so you and I, you know, you and, you and I have a mutual friend named Nancy, who's pretty, uh, pretty amazing and fantastic. And I know we both learned a lot from her. And, you know, Nancy said something to me a couple of years ago that I have never forgotten. And she said, you know, people talk about like, hey, you know, because I think we all recognize there is inherent value in risk taking. And in fact, like the bigger the risk, oftentimes the bigger the reward. And so she said, you know, everyone has this idea that like, oh, well, you just need to get comfortable with risk taking. And she says, well, but if you're comfortable with it, it's not a risk. So it's not that you need to get comfortable with risk taking. You need to get comfortable with the outcomes of the action that that you're taking and then take the action anyway. And so what I hear you saying is, hey, when I want to raise my point of view to more senior leaders, I am inherently comfortable with whatever comes from that. And so I'm curious then, is there anything to learn from that for you in this like, hey, here's one area I'm comfortable with the outcomes of my actions, but in another area where like where you said, well, I take risks, they're just really calculated and planned out. Like, um, you know, is there something that you can learn from the area where where you don't feel like you need to do as much careful planning before you take the action? Yeah, I think part of it is that I'm just highly reflective, highly um, analytical about the choices that I make. And, And you're completely right. I think when what prevents me a lot of times from actioning the potential risk that I might want to take or that I'm considering is my thought about the outcome. And if I feel like the outcome is really unknown, which again, I think gets back to this conversation about like, what is risk taking really? If the outcome is too unknown to me or too uncertain, I think that that's what prevents me from taking action. If I really have a clear sense in my own mind about what is the potential outcome, like even if it's either this is going to happen or this is going to happen, I think I get more comfortable with taking the action. I think what trips me up is not being able to walk through kind of all the eventualities of what might the actual outcome be and then consider each and then make my decision. And when I do have to do that, you know, it takes me a little bit longer to sort of calculate all of that out. So if the question is, is like, what am I learning or what am I considering from this? Thank you for just teaching me, Jenna, that, um, (laughs) you know, I think I can think about my risk taking a little bit more intentionally about is the outcome known? How can you make it known to you or what the options are? And then potentially be more of a risk taker. Maybe I can be uncomfortable and take risks. Well, I think what you just walked yourself through, I would say is risk mitigation, which I think is okay. I think that's a sort of normal human thought process, you know, risk mitigation as opposed to just like, well, who cares? I'm going to do this sort of thing anyway. I appreciate your indulgence in answering my questions, Matt. <laughs> and so then if you're, you know, thinking about, again, we're recording this, it's December, it's the end of it's the end of 2020. You know, if you're like me, you're very ready to start thinking about 2021 <laughs> um, and getting there really quickly. What are you going to learn in 2021, Matt? What do you need to learn in 2021? 
I'm sort of I'm I'm hesitant, but I'm I'm gonna take a risk because I'm okay with the outcome. Which is, <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but it's called the law of the lid, which is basically like for a leader, it's basically like when have you taken the function that you're leading or the thing that you're doing kind of as far as it it can go with your capacity as a leader. And I think in 2021, I'm sort of trying to learn where the top of that lid is with what I'm currently doing. I've been in my role for quite some time. And so that's something that I'm thinking a lot about and that I'm interrogating, investigating, thinking about things like when the program or the department that I have stewardship over, you know, the partners that I have, when do they maybe need a different leader for me? And where might there be other places in the business or the organization or other folks that might need a leader like me to, you know, help them do some stuff. So I think that that's top of mind for me and something that I'm invested in sort of figuring out in 2021. Yeah. So I I love this, Matt. And and I want to take it up a peg, perhaps, as we think about the people that are listening to this, because I do think, you know, end of year, beginning of year is a very natural time for people to do this. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, that in birthdays, I find birthdays are the other time, right? Or you have this sort of like, what am I doing um, with, with my, my job and my life and, and those sort of things. Right. So, so let me ask this though, like, and put your mentor hat on or your learning hat on then, you know, and for other people that are having the same question of, have I brought everything I can bring to my current roles? It's Is it time for something new? How would you advise people think about that? How should people think about that? Yeah, I think how I'm thinking about it, and so like I, I'm part of this, I'm, I'm recommending something both to myself and to others, is that I, I don't think that it's always a clean process, just to be honest with you. I think that there's a lot of externalities that sort of get in our way as we try to think through things like that. For example, you know, since you mentioned Nancy, I will now mention Nancy. One of the things that we talked about in a recent conversation was the idea of, are you running from or running towards something? So that's always one way to sort of think about this concept or this dilemma. You know, the other thing that, again, being a learner is it's really identifying what do you want to learn? So I think that there's a piece of me of like, What's my capacity to help educate others or elevate others? But also, where do I need to learn and be elevated? And am I getting that in my current role? Is it to the degree at which I feel like I need? So is it a soft drip or is it kind of like a, you know, a fire hose? And, you know, how do I calibrate between those two things in terms of driving my own learning and what's important to me? I think what's different for me, and I can appreciate that other people have different motivators and, you know, different things that they're considering. The thing that I kind of caution people against doing and I do not do is don't chase a promotion. Don't chase, you know, um, even visibility or, you know, a better title because those things are really fleeting motivators for making a big career change. You know, the thing that I think about is like, what are you going to learn in, you know, whatever you're doing or, you know, has your has your learning sort of run dry in a lot of ways? That might be something that you have to think about in terms of your career development. The other thing is that, the leaders that you're both surrounding yourself with and that are leading you or those people that you can support that you would run through a wall for that you would really like give it your all for. And then I think you know, I'm very mission and purpose driven. So I think that the mission of the organization is, is really critical. And in my current role, you know, working in safety and security in a very real way, keeping people safe at work is really purpose and mission driven for me. So I love being a part of that. So I need those types of things in my own career as I consider, 
options. Um, what am I going to learn? Who am I going to be working with and leading with? And then is the mission of the thing that I'm doing, is that aligned to my values and the things that I really want to be doing or what I want to be known for? That's great. It's such great advice, Matt, and really, I think, applicable to anybody um, in, in terms of how they're thinking about their own role. So, you know, we are recording the last episode of the first season of your podcast that you created. And so, you know, as you look back then on your inaugural year, and I'm saying this because I'm assuming there are going to be more years, but I don't know, we can we can talk about that. Um, but has the podcast this year sort of done what you thought it was going to do? Like did, you know, talk to me a little bit about how this has been for you. Yeah, you know, there's sort of two elements to this is that I, on one hand, I recognized an opportunity that I think that, you know, I'm very invested in the fact that we learn how to lead from other leaders. So in terms of my customer base or the potential listening audience for this, that was one of the big intentions was let's have some deep and critical conversations with people who are leading in various capacities and learn from them, learn from their lessons, their perspective. And I think that we have achieved that. I'm very proud of that. The other piece of this, so one of our organization's leadership principles is learn and be curious. And I recognized in myself that the learning has always come easy, but then I was really trying to think critically about what does it mean to be curious? And part of that, I think, is just asking better questions and, and really like coming from a place of, I don't know, or I'm willing to, you know, have my assumptions challenged and my beliefs challenged in uh, very intentional ways. So one of the personal, I guess, goals from the podcast for this year for me was just being better at asking questions. So it's funny for me, you know, with each episode, I listen back to them and think about how could I have asked that question differently? Or, you know, how could I have been more concise or not asked a compound question? So both, you know, in my intention for the value that I hope that it's providing to the listening audience, as well as the value that it's been providing for me, kind of those core two intentions. I think that we've been successful. So I'm very proud of that. And there is an intention or a plan to at least have one one more season of this and then, you know, we'll reevaluate, but we are planning for 2021. That is fantastic to hear. And it sounds like a great tee up, Matt. I think for for one last question for you then, because again, this was your um this was your brainchild. This podcast was your your intention. And I feel so honored to be asked to interview you and have a conversation with you to close out this season. But then in that, I want to make sure that you have the have the last word in this. So I'm gonna give you the last <laughs> question for yourself. So is there something, you know, a question that you really would just love to answer? to close this out. And Jeopardy style, feel free to let it, what's the question and what's your answer? So I think I think the question that might be helpful for the audience that hasn't been answered is how does the thought process or the work that I'm doing with diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of integrate into what we're doing with the podcast um, outside of just mm -hmm. leadership? And the answer to that, I'll maybe make it a little bit of a mystery or let some people draw their own conclusions. But I think that the listening audience should be very intentional about looking at the guests that I have had and will have on the show to think a little bit more about what I might be doing from a DEI perspective and leadership perspective. And I don't think that those two things are separate things. I think they're one and the same. 
But I think that you could probably learn a lot about me and a lot about the show if you pay attention to who I'm inviting to be guests on the show. Well, that is a fantastic challenge, I think, for the audience, Matt. Not only the ones that have listened to this episode, but then also go back and investigate previous episodes and then anxiously await when the new season drops in 2021. So thank you so much, Matt, for taking the time to talk today and just being really open and authentic. Thank you, Jenna. Really appreciate your time and the continued thought partnership. Thank you.